into the book of Jeremiah after several weeks of topical sermons. We considered uh, the sermons of the family primarily, and then a little bit in the evenings here of society and culture. But we find ourselves back in Jeremiah 30. And as we uh, do so, we come into a very important passage of Scripture. In the final few weeks before our break, we were considering the false prophets, if you recall, who had arisen to deceive the people. We had considered the evil nature of rebellion and its lasting impact upon the people. We talked about two different men. We talked about uh, a couple of more men, actually, and in fact, more than that. But we talked about these two particular men, Hananiah and Shemaiah, and God's judgment upon them for causing the people to rebel against the Lord. And then we talked about the nature and the dangers of rebellion. We also considered at that time, as we've considered throughout the book, but even more so over these last few weeks, the gracious and loving thoughts of God toward his people. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, God would say. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to bring unto you an expected end. God loves this people. He has his eye on that people. And God began in that time to frame the captivity into which he was sending them. The 70 years into which he was sending them as a step of his mercy, not of his judgment entirely. Yes, he was angry. Yes, he must judge sin. But he's sending them into captivity so that he may do well to them in the latter end. And this theme is going to come strongly to the forefront in the chapters that follow. We're now nearing the final days of the city of Jerusalem before the whole nation is taken into captivity. And just as we saw when we studied through Ezekiel, so too do we see here that once judgment begins to fall, once God begins to judge his people, his message will change from judgment to hope, from sorrow to restoration and repentance. Never do we see God's mercies fail. Never do we see hope die. And in fact, in almost every way, what we'll find is that hope is magnified through these circumstances. <coughs> Excuse me. That God uses these trials and these judgments in the life of Israel to tell them of their future and then to show them of his love for them. Now this week we will see of the final trials that God will impose upon the nation just before he brings about his kingdom. Next week, we'll talk about how God plans to do that through the new covenant in his blood. So you're there in Jeremiah chapter 30. We're looking at verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee, all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. In Jeremiah 22, God told the people, write ye this man childless. And he was speaking to the people, notice the ye, write ye, this man child, childless, about King Zedekiah who would go without children on the throne because of his rebellion. That's the only other time 
to this point where we've seen God command anyone to write anything. And in Jeremiah 22, that was more metaphorical. This is the first time in the book where we see God command Jeremiah to write the words of the book. It is apparent from history that not every prophet was asked to do this. We have no prophecies written uh, from Elijah or Elisha. We have things that they spoke with their mouths. Uh, we have the miracles that they did, but we don't have a book called the book of Elijah or, or the book of Elisha. Those were not the writing prophets. The writing prophets naturally are the prophets of which we have their writings. Any number of prophets during the times of the kings have no messages that were written down by their hand for the people. But Jeremiah's message was and indeed is meant it was meant to be recorded. It is meant to be read and understood for all generations. Verses 3 through 5. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. The reason why God wants these words written down is because they are words of promise and hope which pertain to something that is, in fact, very far off. And God wants these promises recorded so that when those things come to pass, the nation of Israel will not just know that the prophecies of the Lord have come to pass, but they will know what to expect afterwards. That when all of these prophecies and the judgments of these prophecies come to pass, they will know that there is hope on the other side. God tells them that the days are coming when God will restore his people from captivity. Now, this does not surprise us by any means. We got a nice six week or so break here where we were not in Jeremiah. But before that, um, this message was getting somewhat repetitive, right? The message of restoration, the message of God's mercy. Not that it was getting old by any means, but we had seen it and all awful lot of time. So it does not surprise us that God is promising to restore his people from captivity. We've already read twice now of God's promise of restoring them from the captivity of Babylon. That, that God said in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29 that after 70 years, God would visit his people and he would restore them to the land. But immediately in verse 3, we should begin to question whether what God is saying here is actually about the restoration from Babylon or if there's something more going on. And the reason why we would wonder about this is because as we look at what is being said, uh, God speaks of two people groups. He says his people Israel and Judah. And from this, we start to see that perhaps we, we are seeing the evidences of God speaking toward both the northern and the southern tribes. The restoration of the fullness of God's people, which most certainly did not take place at the end of the 70 years of captivity and will not take place. It has not taken place yet in history. And as we understand it from history, from prophecy, will not take place until God regathers his people at the end times. The 70 years of captivity, all the judgments against Jerusalem factor exclusively into the troubles of the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah was being judged by God by being sent into captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom of Israel had been sent into captivity over a hundred years before that. 
They had gone into the hands of the Assyrians over a hundred years before this prophecy. And yet here God is telling them that Israel and Judah will both be restored, right? We're seeing something bigger happening here than just the end of the 70 years of captivity. So immediately we're thinking bigger picture. Immediately our mind goes back all the way to Jeremiah chapter 3, where God spoke of restoring both Israel and Judah, both the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Immediately our minds might jump to Ezekiel 37, like we studied in, the, in our Revelation series, where the prophet takes those two sticks, and on the one stick he writes Ephraim, and on the other stick he writes Judah, and then he puts those sticks together in his hand and they become one in his hand. Uh, a miracle that God chose to do through Ezekiel to show that Ephraim, that would be the capital of Israel or the, 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 the primary tribe of, of Israel, not the capital, but the primary tribe, and Judah, the primary tribe of the southern kingdom of Judah, would be brought back together and made one nation again. Something which has not happened yet to this point in history in total where there has been a regathering of God's people and a reuniting of the tribe. So we're thinking big picture here. Any number of prophecies show us of a restoration where all the tribes of Israel are caused to return to the land. And we, as I've said, see no time in history where this event is realized until the end times. And so we explore these promises and as we do so, our mind should be thinking perhaps towards something bigger. Now we, we are reading and we are considering and we're trying to understand all the implications. We're going to be looking for clues as to whether or not what we're talking about is something bigger than just the, seven, the end of the 70 years. God says the tribes will possess the land of their fathers when they are regathered. God gives these words to them in this time for a very particular reason, of which we begin to see in verse 5. The voice in the land is a voice of trembling and of fear. It is not a voice of peace. We haven't seen this very much. We've seen a lot of violence in the land. We've seen a lot of evil in the land. But now there is a tonal shift in history. Put, picture with me in your mind's eye what has been going on. Jeremiah has been prophesying for a long time now. Before him, there was Isaiah. Any number of other prophets, all speaking this message of judgment if they do not repent. And throughout, there have been these false prophets who have been mocking, who have, who have been scorning. Jeremiah has been mocked. He has been scorned. He has been persecuted. He has been thrown into prison. He has had as we talked about last time with Shemaiah's letter, he has had false prophets writing back to the people saying, why isn't this man in prison? Why haven't you shut his message down? These false prophets summarily die. They're off the scene. They die off. And there's a tonal shift where now the voice in the land is a voice of trembling and of fear. The people have lost hope they perhaps realized that the prophecies of their peace were false. They're perhaps starting to run against the realization that they have been on the wrong side, the realization that they've made the wrong choice, the realization that, that these things are going to come to pass, that the promises of their captivity are now being realized. And what better time for God to express His mercy 
for God to give hope than when the tone is trembling in fear. So God says in verse 6, Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth prevail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned unto paleness. tells Jeremiah something strange. He says, ask whether or not the men of the land are in labor. An interesting picture, but God explains his reasoning. He says, the men of the land are standing around with their hands on their knees and their faces are pale. They are in a posture, bent, hands on thighs, faces pale, as if in labor, great pain, great exhaustion. They're visibly worn out. They've lost hope. And God is saying, well, if there's not a physical problem, then what's going on here? Well, God knows what's going on. God uses this instance to tell them that there was actually worse things coming, but for their best good. And we say, wait a minute. I thought God was going to bring them hope. What do you mean God is going to use this instance of their tremendous sorrow and their tremendous pain and their fear and their trembling in order to cause them that it, to, to understand that it's going to get worse? Well, God is going to offer them hope, but we need to understand something. We need to remember something. God never does, nor has he ever called us to obscure reality in order to provide hope. Now, this is something we need to remember. There are any number of people in Christian circles who, in their great desire to encourage people and to give them hope, to give them some sort of comfort, obscure the truth from them. I see this quite regularly at the jail, that in people's great desire to give hope to these men that are in jail, to these uh, addicts and such, they lie to them. They, they, they obscure the truth from them. They don't want to to, to cause them to see how bad things really are because that might discourage them. So instead, they just don't tell them what they actually need to hear because that might discourage them further. So they don't tell them, look, you're a sinner. Because, hey, that's, that's not a message of hope and encouragement. But look, if I want to get to the message of hope and encouragement in the scriptures, you've got to go through the reality that I'm a sinner. You've got to go through all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death if you want to get to the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? You have to go through the wages of sin is death. Sometimes God has to go through more bad news to get us to the good news. And sometimes we have to go through the bad news to get others to the good news. And if we don't do that, if we, if we try to obscure the bad news in order to offer people hope and comfort, we're obscuring it at their peril. Because in order to get to the hope, of comfort, the hope and comfort, they have to go through the bad news. Sometimes in order to build something up properly, you first got to tear it down. Sometimes if I'm going to be, be painting my house and if I'm going to paint it properly, I first have to chip away all the peeling paint. 
And if I don't chip away the peeling paint, then all of my effort into painting that house is not going to go very well because that, it's going to keep peeling and it's going to peel off that new paint. I've got to get it down to the base layer before I can build it up properly. So God is going to give them some more bad news before he gives them the good news. And Christians, we need to be careful that in our desire to give people hope and comfort, which should be our desire, we fail to, tell, we fail to, to, to bring them through that which they need, realizing where they are to help them get to where they are going. It's not enough to give a man a cup of cold water as he journeys toward destruction. We want to pull him away from the path of judgment. So God offers hope, but only in the context of truth. And that's real hope, right? That's real hope. Real hope is in the context of truth. Real hope is not when I'm lying to someone to make them feel good when, when they, they shouldn't feel good. Real hope is when I tell them the truth and can give them something to hang on to in truth. So here's what God tells them in verses 7 through 9. He says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck. I will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. So God now speaks of a great day. When God speaks of a day being great, this does not mean it's a good day. If, 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 uh, if you came up to me and said, hey, Pastor Wickler, how was your day? And I said, you know, I had, a, I had a really great day today. You're going to assume, and rightfully so, in our English language in 2019, that that means that it was a good day. That that means that I had a whole lot of really good things happen to me and that it was a particularly good day because I didn't call it a good day. I called it a great day. It's a great day today. But that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word great. The word great, when the Bible uses it, is something that is big, something that is major, something that is significant. Now, that can be a, a good thing, but it doesn't have to be a good thing. And the great day that is called the time of Jacob's trouble is not lining up to be a good day, right? It's not lining up to be a good day when it's called the day of time of Jacob's trouble. It's lining up to be a great, great bad day. A great, great bad day. A really bad day. Now this phraseology is not foreign to Scripture. The speaking of, of, of a great day. And in fact, it is quite often that when we see the idea of a great day in Scripture, number one, we're not talking necessarily of a 24-hour day. We'll come to that in a moment. But we're also oftentimes speaking of the same day, and it's not a good day. We see the day of the Lord, right? Which we connect to Revelation in the 70th week of Israel in Daniel 9, a time which Jesus called a time of great tribulation. And so as we see this concept of a great day, the great and terrible day of the Lord comes to mind. Is there any reason why we can connect these things. Well, we've just walked through Revelation not too long ago, so those of you that walked through that with me know that I am fully persuaded that 
the great and terrible day of the Lord is, uh, at least a, a part of that great day will be the time of Jacob's trouble. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we find this connection between a great day in the future and a day of great trouble to be pretty solidly evidenced. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says this, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So we see a day called the day of Jezreel, when the nation of Israel comes back into the land. And we, we talk about the valley of Jezreel, which is one of those valleys with it, within which, according to the, 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 the prophecies of the end times, one of the valleys within which all of the judgments of God will take place and it's called the great day of Jezreel. In Joel chapter 2 verse 31, the Bible says the sun and the moon shall be turned into darkness, or excuse me, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So once again, we have this word great connected to a day, connected to a time period and it is the time when, God, when the judgments of God will fall upon man and will fall upon this earth, the great and terrible day of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. So we talk about a day when the mighty man is crying. It is the great day of the Lord. Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand it? Uh, stand, uh, in, excuse me, and who shall be able to stand it? Stops there. And so we find this other instance of a great day, which is not a good day. It's a day of God's wrath. It's a great day of God's wrath. It's a great, great bad day. And then Revelation 16, 14. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, we see all of these instances of that great day. And as we have looked through prophecy uh, in regard to the great day, uh, whether or not you agree with me that all of these point toward the same period of time, we find that all but one of these spoke of the great day in, in, in explicitly negative terms. And here we have the great day the time of Jacob's trouble. And as we walk through Revelation, you all know I believe that all of this points toward a same period of time. Now, the last thing I mentioned there before we got into that was that a day in the Bible is not always speaking of a 24-hour uh, uh, day, a, a 24-hour period of time. This is why in Genesis, when God wants to make it clear in the creation account that he created the world in six literal 24 hours days, he said, and the morning and the evening was the first day. And the morning and the evening was the second day. There's only one morning and one evening in a 24 hour period, right? You get one morning, you get one evening in 24 hours. And that there is a day that has a morning and an evening and one morning and one evening means that we're talking about a day, a normal 24 hour day. From the context we would discern that that's what the day is. And this is what we do all throughout the Bible, that we go to our context and we say, does this speak of a singular day or are we speaking of a time period? Well, why would we even wonder if we're talking about a time period? Well, 
even today when we use the word day, we're not always speaking of a 24-hour day. If I said, did you have a good day today? My, to my wife, she would assume I'm talking about the day that is today. This 24-hour day, since the day began, how has this day between morning and evening gone for you? But if I look and I say, if I, if, if I tell someone, I was a pretty good basketball player back in the day, no one's going to look at me and say, what, what day was that? Now, they might if they're being snarky. You had one day, right, Pastor? One day where you were a pretty good basketball player. Just that one. Yeah, before everyone grew and I didn't. Uh, I, was, I was okay back then. But, but, and we might say that if we're, if we're being snarky, but, but that's not what I'm saying, and everyone knows that's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that there was a time period where I was a pretty good basketball player, that there was a portion of time, a season of time, a period of my life back in the day, right? Back in the day, back in the, in, in the peak of my life or whatever, however we want to, to speak of that. When we speak of a, a, an event, as I've, I talked about in the Revelation series, if I say I am going to the parade today, now, a parade is a part of what you see when you go to the parade, but there's a lot more to the parade than just the parade oftentimes, right? There might be vendors, there might be activities, there might be face painting, there might be any number of things. And so you go and you get your face painted and you go and you get something to eat and you, you go and you play in the park and, and then you watch the parade and after the parade, you, you might go and, and, and play in the park some more and then you get home and, and someone says, what did you do today? And you say, I went to the parade, Right? And there's a lot that goes into the parade. There's the parade proper, and then there's the parade, everything that also came along with the parade. And so when we see the Bible talk about the day, the day of the Lord, the, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of His wrath, we might very well be talking in some instances about a day, a particular day in which our Lord will come. And we anticipate that there is a particular day in which the Lord will come. But as we study and we compare Scripture with Scripture, and again, I'm not going to uh, um, prove all of this now. I spent a year in Revelation, so I'm not going to go back and rehash that. That was, but We're still too close to it for me to go back and to, to re-preach all of that. Um, but by all means, go back online and listen to it if you need to. And we find that the day of the Lord, the elements surrounding the day of the Lord uh, come as early as the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel and go all the way beyond the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ to the time when he will make all things new, to the time when he will melt the earth with a fervent heat and reforge it as he has promised to do. Peter calls that the day of the Lord as well. And so we have a time period as well, the day of the Lord, the time when the Lord will make these things happen. And a part of the day of the Lord, a part of that time period is the day that is the time of Jacob's trouble. Old Testament and New Testament alike speak of a great day that is coming. And the language itself lends itself to, a, to, to the same time period in each the time when God will judge the world and bring about his kingdom in righteousness. We come back to the text here and we read about this great day some more uh, in verses 7 through 9. The Bible says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like, oh, excuse me, I've already read that. We've already read verses 7 through 9. So as, as we continue here, this day, this great day, this time of Jacob's trouble, 
the day of God's promises. He says there will be a time of great trouble, even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. He says it's going to get worse. And maybe now, Israel, that you are struggling, maybe now that your hands are on your knees and your face is pale and there's fear and there's trembling, you'll understand that times are bad. Now maybe you'll believe me when I say it's going to get worse. But I'm going to save you out of it. And in that day, when I save you out of it, the yoke will be broken from off of Jacob's neck. His bonds will be burst. They would no longer rest under the captivity of anyone. The strangers will no longer serve themselves off of Jacob, but they'll serve the Lord and serve him through David their king. Again, these promises of serving through David their king might bring up in us recollections of Ezekiel 37, 38, going all the way really to 48. And all of the elements of God's promises as it relates to that that temple that we talked about, the millennial temple, and the reign of David, their king, within that temple. We're most certainly talking about end times doctrine here. And what God is highlighting is that this time of great trouble and sorrow will be the means through which God's deliverance and restoration must take place. They have to go through the sorrow to get to the deliverance. But make no mistake, This is a prophecy of deliverance. Verses 10 through 11. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. So God speaks here of his enduring faithfulness. He says, I will save you. You're going to be sent afar. You're going to be scattered into far off lands, but I will save you in them and I will save you from them. He says, I will allow all of the nations into which you're being sent. I will allow all of those Gentile nations. I will allow them to be dissolved. We remember from the statue of Nebuch- that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, the head of gold and the, the chest and arms of silver and, and, and the loins uh, and, and waist of, um, of brass and then of, of the, the legs of iron. We saw in that once we got to the feet of iron and the toes of iron and clay. We saw that that unhewn rock that is the kingdom of Christ crash into that image and pound it to powder and then it gets blown by the wind into oblivion. And we see that image of all of the nations of the world being ground into powder and being blown off and and becoming nothing, but not so with Israel. God says, not so. He says, I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you in measure. To the extent that you need correction in order to be brought back to me, I will bring you back to me. God will not fail. He will correct them in measure, but they will not go unpunished. Verses 12 through 14 as we continue. For thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. They seek thee not, for I have wounded thee 
with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. So God tells them why this must come to pass. God says, it's not enough for me just to call you under repentance. You're past that point. Your wound is incurable. You need judgment. You need chastening. You need something deeper to bring you back. This is like that idea where we tell someone, I'm sorry, that house is in too much disrepair. I can't repair that house now. We've got to tear it down and build it back up. I'm sorry, that car is too far gone. We can't repair that car now. We're going to total it and you're going to have to get a new one. This happens when something is too far gone to just be repaired. God says your wound is incurable. There's nothing that can just heal you. You have to be brought to the end of yourself. He says all your lovers have forgotten you. All those people that you thought that, that, that we're going to be loyal to you. Egypt and Assyria, all those people that you sought to for healing, all those people that you sought to for, for solutions, all those people that you sought to for money and for stability, they have failed you. But you simply won't turn to God. Your sins are increased. Your iniquities have continued. Therefore, you must be chastened. So God concludes in verse 15. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity. Because of thy sins, because thy sins were increased, I have done these things unto thee. God is trying to cause the nation to see that the situation in which they find themselves was one of their own making. That going all the way back to the covenant at Sinai, God promised in his faithfulness that he would chasten them to himself when they strayed. And they accepted that covenant. They bound their choices to the consequences of that covenant. And they did so because they understood God's love for them on that day. They had just been brought through the Red Sea. They had been following the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the, the pillar of fire by night. They knew God's love for them. They knew God's faithfulness. And they bound themselves to God because they knew he'd be faithful. What they failed to anticipate is their lack of faithfulness is that God would be faithful to chasten just like he would be faithful to bless. And so God was chastening them. And God says, look, your wound is incurable. He has tried now for 400 years sending prophets in the time of the kings to bring his people back to him. And they won't do it. So God says it's time for something new. This is what God stresses as he continues. Verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity, and they that spoil thee shall be a spoil, and all that prey upon thee will I give for a prey, for I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they call thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. So God tells the people, and, and he's really looking ahead here, and he's saying that you will continue to be devoured, but at the end of it all, when, when you've been devoured by all people, and then you've been forsaken of them all, when, when you are at the point where, where you are just the outcast of the nations, and you have no one left to turn to, and you're finally sick of turning to the idols, and you're finally sick of turning to the false 
to, to, to the false gods. And you're finally sick of turning to the nations which can't help you. And you're finally sick of turning to yourself when you can't help yourself. On that day, on that day, the nation will be restored to health because they'll seek after the Lord, because they'll finally come back to the Lord, because there will be no one left for them but the Lord. They will be at rock bottom and nowhere else to go and the Lord will come and they'll say, you are mine now and I am yours. On that day, the wounds of the nation will be healed. In that day, Jacob will no longer be an outcast, no longer be abandoned. So God promises in verses 18 to 22, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. And the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of them that make merry. And I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And ye shall be my people." and I will be your God. This is a very special phrase in the Old Testament. Ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Keep note of that one. It's going to come up again next week. It's going to come up again in the week following. It's an important one. Remember what we did here before I preached? When we came together around these elements? For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Ye do demonstrate his death this was us saying, we are his people and he is our God. Significant. God speaks of a day of restoration and rejoicing. God speaks of a, a day of delight and of peace. God speaks of a day when out of the mouths of the redeemed of Jacob will come a voice of thanksgiving and of merriment when the people will be multiplied, when the people will become great, when the leaders will draw nigh unto God and they will lead in his ways. And he asks here, who is this that engaged his, the governor's heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord? And who will it be? It will be God himself who places his law in the heart of that governor. It will be God himself who encourages, come unto me, seek unto me. There will no longer be that separation. Why? Because they will be his people and he will be his, their God. There's coming a day when this will take place. We find this promise spans Old Testament and New. Ezekiel 37, 23, we find it. Ezekiel 37, 27, we find it. Zechariah 8, verse 8, we find it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, we find it. Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, we find it. But it is important to understand that in every single one of these contexts, we find not only the promise that God will do this. We find not only the promise that the nation of Israel will be restored. We find not only the promise that they will be his people and he will be their God, but he tells them how. How will this come to pass? And our context here is no different. 
Now, we're not studying that this week. We're in Jeremiah 30 this week. We are reading about God's mercy. We're reading about the promise of the restoration. The how comes next week. And the how is the new covenant. A new covenant that God will make with his people. And he tells them that this covenant will be established with the nation after the day of Jacob's trouble. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for now, let's finish our context and then we'll apply. Verses 23 and 24, we read this. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he hath done it and until he hath performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, ye shall consider it. God tells Jacob that on the day when they are truly his people, in the latter days, in the days around surrounding the day of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, the day of his great wrath, in the latter days, God says, you'll understand what I'm saying, Israel. You don't get it right now. You're not, that, you're not far enough gone to understand what I'm telling you. You have not humbled yourself yet to fully understand it. That day, you'll consider it in the latter days. He says, He will pour forth His furious whirlwind upon the wicked. The anger of the Lord will utterly consume the wicked. And He tells them, You don't believe me today. You don't know your need today. Even when Christ came, Israel did not know their need, did they? He came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand and they slew him, rejected him. But God says, and to this day, they are still living in this unbelief, but God says there's coming a day in the latter days, you will consider this. In the latter days, you will understand this these things will come to pass. If you're at all familiar with Jeremiah and the foundations of the enduring promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know that that's where we're going next. You know that when we talk about the new covenant, we are connecting it through Jesus, through the Lord's table, to what he did on the cross. Jesus declared at the the time of instituting the Lord's Supper, this is the New Testament in my blood. It represents the New Testament in my blood that his blood would be the currency of the new covenant. And that's where we'll be going next week. And what that means to us is that for we who are in Christ, we are already the blessed recipients of these promises in the new covenant. This evening we have partaken together in the memorial of the new covenant in his blood, lest by any means, God forbid, we should ever forget its power and its significance. Now, we're not a part of the tribes of Jacob, right? We, as the church, we do not believe have usurped Israel. We are co-inheritors of the spiritual blessings which were promised to Abraham, and so are the sons and lineage of Abraham's faith. As Galatians tells us quite plainly, we are Abraham's seed in a spiritual sense. 
but the church is not the nation of Israel. Israel has her own promises. Israel has her own promises of judgment. Thank God these promises are not ours because if they were ours, we'd have a real bad time coming before the good time afterwards. So we dwell here upon the promises to Israel and his grace and his mercy, but we also need to understand that as it comes to the promises of redemption, we're going to be there on that day. That on the day when God brings Israel back to himself, we have been grafted into the olive tree of God's purposes and we have inheritance in that day as well. And in that, we forge an understanding that when God speaks to the nation of Israel about various parts of the blessings that he desires to bestow upon them, there are any number of elements of those blessings that we have to look forward to as well. Blessings of the kingdom. And I want to consider three things that God said to them in Jeremiah 30 that I'd like for us to consider for our own lives this evening. In verse 10, he told them, Therefore, fear thou not. Fear is the birthright of the human condition since the day that Adam and Eve fell to sin. We spoke of it this morning. Just after the fall, we read Adam and Eve hearing the voice of God in the garden, walking in the cool of the day. And the Bible says they were afraid because they were naked and they hid themselves. Since that day, fear has plagued humanity. Fear of pain fear of death, fear of meaninglessness or lack of purpose, fear of sorrow, fear of loss, fear fear of failure. Magnify these emotions into eternity and humanity is left in the hopelessness and darkness of oblivion. Not only lacking the power to get ourselves into the light, but lacking even the vision to see our way to the light. There are perhaps some under the sound of my voice, that are racked with fear, that live in fear. Fear is a mortal enemy and a terrible foe. Enter the love of Christ, though, and things change. We read in 1 John 4, verses 18 and 19, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Into the fear and darkness of the world pierce the love and light of life in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is, and indeed can be, no fear in love. Because perfect love, true love, a completed love, right? That's what the word perfect means in the scripture. It doesn't mean flawless in in and of itself. It means finished. It means complete. Perfect love casteth out fear. That's the love that shined upon us in God. And as the love of God shines abroad in our hearts, there can be no fear. There can be no place for fear. There can be no room for fear. God looked ahead in Israel and he said, fear thou not because there's coming a day where I will redeem you. And we have already experienced that day through Christ. So fear thou not. God promised to the nation of Israel in himself in Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear thou not for I am with thee. 
Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Are you his people today? Are we his people today? Is he your God today? There's coming a day where God says, Israel, you will be my people. Well, he was already their chosen, right? But he says there's coming a day in the future after the time of Jacob's trouble when you will be my people and I will be your God. And yet the church, we're there. We are already his people. He is our God. So don't fear. Don't be dismayed. He is with us. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He will uphold us with the right hand of his righteousness. We don't have to fear any longer. Instead, we echo the words of Paul. In Hebrews chapter 13, I'll read the second half of verse 5 and into verse 6. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is my helper. So what is life? What is man? What are circumstances that they should cause me to live in fear? If God is all in all, then why should I fear the circumstances of tomorrow? Why should I fear sorrow or pain or loss? Why should I fear for my health or my family or my very life? If even death and the grave have been conquered by the love of God, which casts out fear, by that perfect love, which casteth out fear, and the grave has been conquered, the tomb is empty. And if that is the case, then how can I fear? Verse 10, fear thou not. Verse 17, God said to them, I will heal thee of thy wounds. Once the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, the fear is replaced by the love of God, then God can heal us, mold us, shape us, grow us. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we cannot know just how broken we are. For many of us who perhaps grew up in good homes, parents loved and provided for them in a country that is free, where resources are plentiful and where persecution is minimal, at a time in history when some of the worst diseases of mankind have been eradicated at least from first world countries, where war has become something in our culture that has happened almost exclusively on foreign soil, not our own. The wounds of the spirit aren't always exposed as perhaps they are in the lives of those whose circumstances in life will make them more vulnerable and cause the wounds of the spirit to bubble up to the top where the wounds of the body and the soul exist, the wounds of the spirit are a little bit easier to see. It is with the many across from whom I sit in the jail where I can see those wounds of the spirit easier because the wounds of the body and the soul have made it so, because they have experienced great sorrow and suffering that they carry with them every day. It is not so with all of our people here, all of our young people in particular, and that's not a bad thing. But don't allow the comfort of your life, don't allow the, 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 the general uh, um, joy that your life has been in, if that's you, to fool you into thinking that you 
are not, and for many were not, entirely broken outside of Christ. And that regardless of your life and experiences, only through Christ is there any hope of repair. For many in this world, the realities of this healing in their body and in their soul form the very foundation of their rejoicing. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, With his stripes we are healed. And one day, Revelation 21 verse 5 says, He will make all things new. In this new creation, the tree of life, which Revelation 22 verse 2 says, will bear new fruit every month, and the leaves of which exist for the healing of the nations. For we who have found Christ, we understand that the wounds of this life are healed in Him. Not all of the wounds can be healed. There are scars that will carry with us of wrongs that have been done, of injuries we've sustained. There's coming a day when all will be made new, right? We're longing for that day, but until then, we understand the power of God to heal the sin-sick man. Man's sin has power only to ruin, only to destroy, only to, to kill. Jesus said in John 10, verses 9 and 10, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The light of God's perfect love removes our fear. The light of God's perfect love forms the very foundation for our healing. The foundation for us to be healed. With His stripes, we are healed. Third and finally, verse 19, out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. This morning, we sang several songs of the resurrection. And the last song we sang, hymn number 20, praise Him. Praise Him, right? Once we have sung of the great resurrection of Jesus Christ, once we have sung of the victory over death and of sin in the grave, what left is there? Once we have been recipients of this so great salvation, once we have been recipients of His great love, once we have uh, been, been freed from our fears, once we have found healing through His love, what is there left but to praise Him? Thanksgiving. Out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. We are lifted unto praise, unto joy, unto humble thanksgivings by the goodness of our God. We echo the words of every generation of the redeemed. We talk of His goodness. We sing of His praises. We tell of His redemption. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb his child, and forever I am. He has cast out our fears. He has healed us from our sins. We're free. And so we thank him. For as our Lord himself said in John 15, apart from me, without me, ye can do nothing. 
that we have him is cause for great thanksgiving. This is Resurrection Sunday. It is a day intended to remember the most important of days. I entitled my message last week, The Defining Moment in History, and indeed it was. As we walk away from this day of joy and of rejoicing, and I hope it's been that for you. For those outside of Christ, today is ritual, today is tradition. Uh, for those that are, are, are married just to religion, it's a day of religion. That, that, that's, that's all it is. But for we who have a personal relationship with Christ, this day is, is the pinnacle of our remembrance. This day is the very source of our joy. Not this day as much as that day, but this day is remembering that day, right? You get it. As we walk away from this day, let us do so with thankful hearts. The love of God has been shined into them. Are, are you dealing with fears? God tells Israel on the day that he redeems them, they don't need to fear any longer. Well, we've been redeemed. Are you walking in fear? On the day of God's redemption, he told Israel, I will heal you. We've been redeemed. The healing, not in full. We're waiting for the healing of our body. We're waiting for, for us to remember sin no more. We're waiting for those things. But the healing of God is available. Is it yours? Reconciling us to him. Healing us of our sins. Removing us from our fears. Are you thankful today? Can you dwell in that thanksgiving today because you've realized that? That is you. This is your birthright in Christ, if indeed you have him. Let's not fall short of all that Christ offers us through this redemption. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.